a lot of us have been studying together on Wednesday nights. We've been studying Jewish mysticism, and we've been studying it um, in this collection called Jewish Mysticism and the Spiritual Life, Classical Texts, Contemporary Reflections. I know, right? That's a mouthful. Um, so we've been studying these texts together, and we've been explicating them and working with them and figuring out how they apply to our own lives, because to study Jewish mysticism as kind of a um, intellectual engagement is lovely. I'm not real sure. It has a lot to do with our daily lived Jewish lives. So for those of you who are here expecting to understand Jewish mysticism when you leave, I'm going to give you enough background, enough concept, enough language to know something about what happens with the text, what happens with the ideas of the mystics as we see it translated through the lens of Hasidism and as it is lived in you know, everyday lives of Jews who are struggling to make sense of it. Um, so if you really want to know more about this topic and how it speaks to us, particularly as non-Orthodox Jews, uh, as Reconstructionist Jews, I'm going to tell you that you should buy a book by Rabbi Arthur Green. He was once president, while you get your pens out, he was once president of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. He was president of the seminary and a leading teacher and thinker. You'll see him all over our prayer book. He has comments above and below the line. Um, and he's, he's, very, uh, he's a very prolific thinker and writer. Rabbi Arthur Green wrote a book called Ehye. E, uh, don't worry, Ehye, E-H-Y-E-H. Ehye, colon, a Kabbalah for tomorrow. I think, or today, or something. Um, so it is one of the best books I have ever read on why Kabbalah should matter to us. Like, what in the world would we do with these ideas of the Kabbalists? So when I say to you Kabbalah, what do you think? When I say Jewish mysticism, what do you think? You think of numbers. Numbers so numbers has a very specific science in Jewish mystical practice, in Jewish mystical tradition, and it is called gematria. Gematria is about taking every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and applying a number to it. Before Roman numerals, how did they make a grocery list? Before Roman numerals, what would you have done? Well, if you, needed, if you needed two of something, you would write that something. So you would delineate it by letter. A, get eggs. B, don't forget yogurt. C, right, dog food. So you, you would use letters to enumerate, right, things on a list or to represent an amount of things. So it is with the Hebrew alphabet. So they used... Aleph, Bet, Gimel, they assign numbers to those letters. So if you take a Hebrew word, every Hebrew word, the most, and you already know one in Gematria, by the way. I'm sorry? Chai. Excellent. Chai is Chet. Chet has the value of Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zayin, Chet. Eight. And Yud is what? Ten. Ten. So... 
Chet and Yud, the word Chai, the word life, has a value in gematria of 18. This is why whenever you say give a gift, you're going to give twice Chai. Like, what is that? Twice Chai, right? It's twice 18 because the Chet and the Yud, when you add them together, make 18. This is a huge science in Kabbalah. Why? Because my name is Rachel. So if you add the value of Resh, Chet, Lamed, Rachel, you're going to get a, a value. You're going to get a number. Any other word in Hebrew that has that same number, regardless of what letters makes it up, that word must have something to do with Rachel, by definition. God created the world with language. God created the world through speech. It was, of course, Hebrew speech, right? Vayahi or, let there be light. So already, or, there's got to be a number for that. And then anything that matches that number is connected by definition to light. So then there's a huge study of all, and a wonderful playfulness about studying all those numerical connections. And then what are the things that we read into that? So Gematri is part of Kabbalah. What else do you know about Kabbalah? The Sphirot, the ten emanations of God. You've all heard of the Sphirot? Nope. Okay. So ten Sphirot. Excellent. You're going to hear about them freely. The ten Sphirot, we're going to talk about those. Uh, What else do you know? What does Kabbalah mean? Hidden knowledge. What is received? What is received? So what is received? What is Kabbalah? Hmm? Surely we received those. Hopefully, Ellen, we remember the Ten Commandments, right? So we received those, right? What's received is texts, wisdom, knowledge, knowledge about practice. Torah is received, right? So when someone says, have you studied Kabbalah? It all, the question already doesn't make sense. Have you studied that which is received? I hope so. Right, right, or, or I don't know what I've been doing with my time, right? So <clears throat> studying Kabbalah, like there isn't one text that is Kabbalah, the Jewish book called Kabbalah with a capital K, right? Kabbalah is that which is received. And Kabbalah was always understood to be both a study and a practice. And it was never, by the way, outside of normative Jewish practice, ever, 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 ever. There is no way to understand Jewish mysticism outside of normative Jewish practice. It's like icing. But you have to have cake, right? No one eats just icing. Well, all right, Madonna eats just icing, right? Is it really a frosted cake? No, you can call this a frosted cake. It remains sugar congealed with lots of other chemicals, right? It, it doesn't change the fact that it's just icing. You, and you can do that, but you miss the heart. You miss the substance of what... Kabbalah is coming to talk about. So Richard, help me by please passing half to this side, and I'll pass half to this side. If you'll take one to pass, but leave me one, because I don't have the original. You're going to turn to page 20, which is the not Sphira page, the other page, the just text page, 
and Mark is going to read for us from Rabbi Arthur Green from his book, Ehyeh. He's going to read that first paragraph for us. Mark, go ahead, the basic teaching. The basic teaching of mystics, dressed in the garb of many traditions, is essentially this simple message. There is only one, all multiplicity of beings and a sense of separateness or distance from one another are either illusion or represents a less than ultimate truth. This is especially the case in the language of Western mysticism, in the great alienation or, or sense of distance that humans feel between themselves and God. All right, so Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, Rabbi Green is asserting, is no different than any other form of mysticism. <gasps> Heresy. <laughs> So special? Really? Really? The basic teaching of mystics, dressed in the garb of many traditions, is essentially this simple message. There is only one. Capital O. That's it. You may now go home. <laughs> Enjoy your family. There's only one. This truly is the message of every mystical tradition. And there's lots of wonderful things that come after this assertion and after this understanding and after practices that lead one to experience this understanding. There's lots of gorgeousness that happens through text and language and the Hebrew language and Jewish history and how that applies to how we understand those texts. All of that is fantastically gorgeous, and it's the same in Buddhism and Hinduism and every other tradition that has a mystical element. Really, it comes back to this. How do we remember? How do we remind ourselves? How do we engage in practices that bring us back to the knowing, the true knowing that everything is one, capital O. If anyone asks you, what is Kabbalah, you now have your elevator answer. And truly, it is not an oversimplification. This is, this is the point. Everything else is illusion. So there is only one, all multiplicity of beings and their sense of separateness or distance from one another are either illusion or represent a less than ultimate truth. It does not mean we are not unique. It does not mean we don't have individual experiences. It does not mean we don't have histories and temperaments and different historical eras that we live in that then influence what happens with those gifts and talents and challenges. <clears throat> But if we believe they are truly separate, according to the mystical tradition, any mystical tradition, ultimately, that's illusion or less than the ultimate truth. It may be a truth, but it's like not the big truth. What is the big truth? This is especially the case in the language of Western mysticism, in the great alienation or sense of distance that human, humans feel between themselves and God. Why is this unique to the West, do you think? What do you think Rabbi Green is suggesting? Well, I'll speak of uh, Japanese culture 
kids, uh, students my age, on platform space. They still live with parents. Everybody kind of stays together. Family's just family. Family's family. I'm part of family, so why would I leave when I'm part of this organism that we call family? Pretty much, right? Family's just number one until they die. Family's number one till they die. They're part of a larger system. They understand themselves as located in a system that they're a part of it, they're a unique part of it, they're a distinct part of it, but they're a part of it. Right? Sometimes they lose it. Sometimes they, right, of course. So we're not going to attach value right now either way, right? We're going to say that's an understanding that's very different from the West. What does the West celebrate? Individuals. Individualism, I would go so far as to say, with all of its benefits and all of its stresses and all of its deficiencies, Richard. But But I think you could also, as... Uh, while you can uh, uh, implicate individualism as a potential source of the alienation that people largely in the West feel, I think it's also largely the Western tradition of rationalism, uh, which you know emerged in the 16th, 17th century, that is also largely at the root of a lot of alienation. So part of the alienation that Richard is lifting up is that there was a split that happened in a place called Greece. And the philosophers, the thought leaders in Greece, posited that there was the perfect pen. And the only perfect pen is the idea pen. Every pen that is in actual existence is by definition flawed because it is in the material world. It is a pen. And any pen is not really pen. The real pen is the idea pen. That's the ideal pen. So this is Neo-Aristotelianism, Neoplatonism that we see affecting so much of the thought in the West, which then bifurcates the material world and the spiritual world. That's right. So the world of ideas, the world of abstraction, the world of thought, the world of not material becomes the ideal. It is perfection. And everything that is part of the material, lived, physical world, the natural world, is by definition flawed. This is a split that Judaism never bought. It is a split that is after Judaism, I mean, Judaism continues, of course, and Jewish thought um, emerges and evolves, and Maimonides and other people like him are very influenced by Neo-Aristotelian thought and (coughs) Neo-Platonism. But for the most part, Jewish tradition never bought the idea that the material and the spiritual were somehow separate. Kabbalah is very much about reinvigorating, reanimating the connection between body and spirit. Spending a lot of time reflecting, spending a lot of time in embodied practice, spending a lot of time with the mind and the heart and the soul as one approaches eating, for instance, is a way to constantly reinforce, oh, right, I'm not just eating, 
I am performing a spiritual act by eating. And if I eat with the proper spiritual intention, I can lift up the divine in this food. And when I eat it, I liberate that divineness of that food and it goes back to the divine source and the divine source is further unified in that experience. Why does it need to be unified? Sure. I'm a little backwards, but it's okay. That's how it goes. So when I eat, because I'm hungry and I just want to fill myself up, there's nothing wrong with that. That is a good thing. We are human beings. We are created with an appetite. We are created to eat. We have food that's created for us to eat. Isn't that wonderful? We're supposed to say a blessing, the rabbis taught us way early on. We're supposed to say a blessing because that's been given to us as a gift. And if you don't say thank you for a gift, in rabbinic terms, you are in fact stealing. You must say thank you for this food or else you are stealing from God. You are stealing from the universe. So when you say a blessing, then you eat that food in holiness, and that's a wonderful thing. But the the mystics took it one step further. How do we further bring our spiritual selves to this act of eating? We actually sit with great intention before we eat. In quiet, maybe. Reflecting on hunger. Reflecting on how many in this world are hungry. Reflecting on the nature of ourselves as beings that get hungry. Appetite. And then what it means to approach the gift of nourishment. What went into creating that nourishment for us? How fortunate we are. Well, go on as long, 15 minutes go on with this. And with deep gratitude to eat, according to the mystical tradition, when one eats like that, One liberates the divinity within that food, because the divine is everywhere, in everything. One liberates the divinity within that food, it returns to its source, and you have now helped the Holy One be more whole. Dana? So, I heard you say intention, and the the mystics, the intention has to do with the mystics, but I was thinking about Kavanaugh when we pray, and you know, in our prayer book. So, same thing. Because one can speed mumble Davin all the way through Shachri, through the morning service, and okay, every single syllable came out of my mouth. I'm Yotze, I'm, I'm, I could get the check in the big black book because I said every syllable of the morning service in Hebrew. Okay, is that prayer according to the rabbis? Yes, you fulfilled the definition of prayer for the mystics. Mapidom, absolutely not. For the mystics, no. Not until you come to prayer with an intention. Till you soak up the meaning of every word and bring that fully into that experience. Yes? So, one yes is prayer. For the mystics, no. A yes, every Jew should do that. And that's fine if that's all Jews do, but... There is another level, there's a deeper level of prayer that is the mystical experience. And that that, for some people, should be the goal. Not everybody, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Would you say that gratitude is the only way to liberate the divine? Oh, there's lots of wonderful ways to liberate the divine. One is, um, like we said, intention to do so. 
right? I'm going to eat with the intention of approaching the divine in this food as it connects with the divine in me. Because there was a thing that happened called Shvira. What is Shvira? Lishbol. Lishbol is to break. Shvira, breakage, shattering. So the Garden of Eden is one way to understand the creation of the world, the creation of the universe. But for the people who really know what happened, here's the story. Everything was God. Ein Sof. No end to the divine. No end to God. Everything was God and God was everything. If God was everything, then there's no way for the universe to exist because God is everything. And God takes up all the space, as it were. If we can just get our heads around concepts like space when there's no space and time. So, like before the Big Bang. Like, okay, how do you talk about pre-Big Bang? Like, I don't know. I don't even know how we talk about the Big Bang, but that's somebody else's problem. So, Shvira. So, there's this God is everything, and then something happens, and God starts to emanate out of God's self to do something else, to have something else happen. We don't know why. I have a theory, but we, we don't know. I'll tell you my theory if you want to hear it later, but we don't know why. And then there's no place for that to exist. So God does this loving act of what we call tzimtzum, self-contraction. God contracts God's self so that there is space. One of my teachers, I loved their description, is that if everything is God, ain't so, no end, then what does God do? God lovingly contracts to the sides and leaves space in the donut for a hole. And that hole is the space that the universe is going to take up. So God goes and does a loving act of tzimtzum, we don't know why, and then spills God's self into vessels. God's light is going to pour into vessels. Those vessels, for some reason we don't know, there's a cosmic accident, and they shatter. And the divine light goes flying everywhere. We have the created world here. And the shards of those vessels are the material. So every time we approach a piece of food, it's a shard. That means there's a divine spark of light in it. And when we approach eating with the right intention, we liberate that spark, that nitzatza, back to the source. Okay. Take it or leave it. Doesn't matter. This is the Kabbalistic system we're working with. So for them, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because that's not the point. The point is that's the underlying truth for them of everything. So everything we approach in the physical world has the opportunity to become a sacred experience of liberating the sparks. So when you hear tikkun olam, tikkun from what? What does tikkun mean? Repair. Repair of what? Of the shvira. The brokenness. The brokenness. That's the brokenness they're talking about. We are here to help repair the shvira that happened, the cosmic accident that happened, that gloriously resulted in all of this. Um, 
So that's kind of the underlying understanding of the Kabbalists, of any Jewish mysticism that we're dealing with. And that makes, and what I want, the point I want to make from that is that the divine is right here, right now, accessible to every single one of us. It is not some lofty thing. It is not some idea. It is not an abstraction. It is right here. It is in that table. It's in every human being in a different way, magnified, bigger, fuller. It's everywhere. And it's up to us to interact with the world in such a way that we are about repair and liberation of those sparks back to its source. I've given you on the other side a diagram because there are flavors to the emanation of God into the world. We're not going to spend time on them tonight. If you want to, we can in the future. Each of them has its own quality. And for the Kabbalists, they break the world and every experience into these ten flavors, these ten different ways of having the divine manifest in the world. So you'll hear these terms used a lot by the Kabbalists. Most of the texts that we get in Kabbalah are inaccessible to us. So if you thought I was going to give you the text on Kabbalah and begin paragraph one of it tonight, most of them are inexplicable to us. How many of you can open a math book to the section on trigonometry and understand it? Richard, I know you can. You could teach it, which is a little distressing. But um, most, to most of us, those are symbols that mean, we know they mean something. We have absolutely no idea what they mean. But we know if we got a math professor in here, he would go on and on and on and on and on and on about what only three of those symbols meant. And then when you talk about those symbols in relationship to each other, one of them times the other one, one of them to the power of the other one. Oh my God, right? I start to have then palpitations. Really <laughs> then you get really excited, right? Right? So, because they're like, oh, this is so cool. Watch how this one interacts. What? So, this for the mystics is how they write their texts. They'll say, oh my gosh, when Bina meets Chochmah, and it results in chesed. And when that chesed bumps up against Dean and Gavura, watch what happens. <laughs> and you're like, you can translate those words, pi, function, division. You can translate them. It does not help you understand one thing about what they're talking about. They write in code, partly because they are aficionados. They are uh, adepts. Adepts. Thank you. They are adepts. Harry Potter language. Right? They are adepts at this stuff. We are below novices. Um, and not everybody is supposed to have access to this knowledge. Why? Why do they care who has access to this? Well, my understanding is there, there used to be a, a maybe there still is, a tradition, say, within orthodoxy, that you shouldn't start studying Kabbalah until you basically study everything else there is, because Kabbalah can be such going down a rabbit hole 
that if you spend all your time on Kabbalah, you're not going to be paying enough attention to all the stuff that you really should have been learning before you started. On Why should have? Why you should you wouldn't be paying attention to the stuff you should have been learning? Why not just learn Kabbalah? It's the icing, and what's the danger in eating only icing? A diabetic coma. Yeah. Or, or insane. Or what? Or insane. Or insane, right? So, which are very similar things from what I've heard. So you can eat only one of those things, but if you do that and don't have the nourishment underneath it, it takes you to places that are not healthy. And so the Kabbalists really understood that you had to have a grounding in other texts, other experiences, and not just texts and not just knowledge, by the way. You had to be grounded in life. Why? 40, male, married, with children. That's when you can study Kabbalah. Why? Why not be a Jewish scholar who's... You know, 27, genius, learned all the other stuff, and is now an expert in Kabbalah. Why not? Some satisfaction in life. Ah, so satisfaction in life is important? Understanding, experience, relationships. Why are all those important before you study Kabbalah and become proficient in Kabbalah? Why? Why does it matter? It's icing otherwise. Okay, so you're eating icing otherwise. What's the, so we've talked about a diabetic coma. How do those things fight a diabetic coma? Well, they're, they're the protein, they're the building blocks. They're, you know, that's how you release the divine back into the. So you have to have some concrete in order to actually do what Kabbalah is asking you to do. That's part of it. I don't really understand what Kabbalah is, but it sounds as <laughs> if you couldn't grasp it. So you, if you don't have the experience, you can't really understand what it's actually really talking about. That's on the one hand. It would only be abstract knowledge. That, to the Kabbalists, is dangerous. Why? Because you need foundation. Ha-ha. You can get lost, you can get lost in Kabbalah so that you, um, you're not attached to what's around you anymore. That's exactly right. If you're not attached to a wife who's going to nag you, it's time to put the book down. And children, daddy, come play with me, because it had to be daddy. I have to remember that, right? You, you might actually float away. You might get lost in this abstraction. And it's not saying that that in itself is dangerous. It's saying that is not what we want. That's important. If you take nothing else from this night, take that. That is not the point. We do not have monasteries. We don't. Why? Because we do not believe that going away somewhere and understanding esoteric truths and and getting lost in them and spending one's life in them, Judaism does not understand that to be a good or desirable thing. You should love somebody. They should love you back. They should feed you. You should eat it. You should feed the toddler while she's making the next court. Right? You, you should be part of this world. It's not about spiritual abstraction. It's about this world 
And if those experiences don't somehow come back to inform our experiences of lovemaking, of baby holding, of dog walking, of eating strawberries for the first time in the season. Okay, I lived in northern Minnesota. You all eat them So if it doesn't somehow inform my experience of those things, it's irrelevant. That would be heresy in a lot of other traditions. Can we just say that? That's the point in some other traditions, not for Jews. You should eat with more joy and more satisfaction, understanding, liberating the sparks, understanding 15 minutes of meditation before you put it in your mouth. That should enhance your experience. You shouldn't just eat minimally and do all the other stuff. That is a really important part of understanding what Jewish mysticism um, is about. All right, so to get at this, you were all emailed uh, that we were going to do a text tonight. Those of you who have been with us before anyway. Did all of you get the email about this text we're going to do tonight? No, starting on page 67. Yes, starting on page 67. Yes. Which gets us to our point. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're getting it now. From Jewish mysticism and the spiritual life. Because the part we're going to start now is called Embodied. Part three of this book, Embodied Spiritual Practice. I was just uh, with the Jewish Institute for Spirituality in a wise aging training. We want to start a wise aging group here at KI, maybe two, if it's popular. Fantastically amazing, amazing experience that we're going to have. So I'll email all of you about that. So the Institute for Jewish Spirituality deals a lot in contemplative and mindfulness practices. which we are reminded is an embodied practice. What you're getting is a piece of text from this book. Why is this in Jewish mysticism? How is this Jewish mysticism? This is Rabbi Abraham Yehoshua Heschel, the Ohev Yisrael. How does this have anything to do with mysticism? That looks suspiciously like a Hasidic text. Rabbi Renner says, you're teaching Hasidus tonight. (laughs) That's a Hasidic text? What is that doing in a mysticism class? Hasidism is lived mysticism. It is a way, it takes its own, te- its own teachers' teachings that are based in Kabbalah and brings it into, into present day life. How do we live this stuff? It's not in code. If you want me to do code with you, we'll do another class. Right? If you want me to do trigonometry with you, I can do that. I don't find trigonometry terribly helpful. But somebody who, like Richard, could take trigonometry and write this incredible, beautiful insight into Torah, which he's done, by the way, from a mathematical place, oh my God, it blew me away. I had such a, like, 
moment of oh my things colliding and opening up oh my god but it took richard to do that for me i could never look at math and look at torah and go oh of course of course right long division right there in the abraham narrative <laughs> right but richard could do that because he's deeply steeped in those symbols and those concepts and brought a mathematical concept into the interpretation of torah that blew me away that's what Hasidism does with those coded texts that we don't know or understand much about. And they use Torah, right, as the lens. Because we all share access to that. All that we're going to say might be a bit limited. That we limit ourselves. Let's look at how. Someone read the first part of the Ohev Israel, please. Remember? the code? Because thank God Rabbi Gordon Tucker is going to unpack this for us. But that was uncoded. That was decoded. Do, do you know what that just said? Decoded from what? Kabbalah. Mysticism. This is decoded mysticism. <laughs> like, oh, okay, sure. Now I'm clear. Thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that, oh, heavy Israel. Now, now I'm completely clear, right? So if this is decoded, imagine what coded looks like. All right? So we're going to need a contemporary of ours, Rabbi Gordon Tucker, to decode the decoded version. So Hasidism decodes for their students the, the, the Kabbalistic concepts, the mystical concepts, and embodies it more immediately and fully for their students. We are too far removed, even from the Hasidic tradition and our Torah tradition to, to understand any of what this means without explication. All right. So this first point, this is one point, by the way. Remember what Amalek did to you. Does, do any of you remember this? That we're supposed to remember what Amalek did to us in the desert, and we're supposed to wipe out the name of Amalek. It's about a battle. Amalek attacked us. They attacked from the rear. Who's at the rear? 
The women and children, the stragglers, the aged, the old, the sick, they're at the back. They can't move as quickly, and your defenders are up front. So Amalek attacked from the back. Heinous. Especially awful. Even in war. It's war crimes, right? Starting with the vulnerable. That's a war crime. So remember that, says Torah. Don't ever forget that. What Amalek did to you. All right, so is that what it means? God forbid. I mean, that's one level of what it means, but God forbid that should be it. Of course, it's a mystical tradition that tells us what that really means. What does that really mean? Why are we supposed to remember this so much? Because there's other things we're supposed to remember too. That's one of four, right? So remember what Amalek did to you. The other is this business about Miriam, which we're not going to get into. Shabbat. Right? And this, uh, the fact that Torah, right, is given to us at Sinai. So, if you say given to us at Sinai for us, that means one moment in time. God gives Torah, the people receive Torah, it's done. Because that's our temporal human experience. But in in Kabbalah, we know that God is never-ending. God is Ein Sof. God is, is, was, always, will be. God is not just eternal, but what is the Gordon Tucker uses the term, like, sub-eternal. Outside time. Outside of time. So what does that mean? If God is outside of time, we experience Sinai as a moment in historical, you know, blah, 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 year in the blah, blah, blah place. How does God experience it? All at once. All at once. What does that mean? Who said it always? Who said always? Laura Diamond. Thank you for being here with a sick kid and husband out of town. So, so is he talking about vulnerability also? So let's see. He seems to be suggesting that God has no experience in time. So for God, Sinai is eternal, which means Sinai is happening right now, all of the time. And because so much of this is, is that God doesn't change. God is the Ein Sof. God is the, the endless one that's always doing what God is doing, which is being God's perfect, amazing, wonderful self. God's not going to do one thing on Thursday and another thing next Tuesday. God is always doing God. And part of doing God is giving Torah. So that's happening all the time. Not one moment in time, God forbid. I have an image for that. An image for that? Yeah, that I thought of. Okay. Yeah? Just assume that on the back of a piece of paper, you have the timeline of human history. Mm -hmm. Okay, so humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. And hopefully they'll be around for at least five billion. At which point, if we get our act, if we get our act together, you know, five billion years from now, the sun goes gets big, and we're incinerated. But basically, we're a long time. So you have a line with human history. Right. Take this piece of paper, turn it into a cylinder, put a light bulb inside. Light bulb is ain't so. Okay. Light bulb goes off. That's that's the transmission at Sinai. That's when God sort of, okay, I'm now going to release Torah to the world. Everybody on the line gets it at the same time, whether they're 
500,000 years ago or 3 billion years in the future. Beautiful image, right? So what Richard is saying is, here's the timeline of human history. We all exist on it, but God exists at the center of this. So when the light bulb inside goes boom, Torah, it's happening all across that timeline. Every moment in human history. Beautiful, beautiful way to get our heads around that. Thank you, Richard. So, right? So, okay. Great. Okay, what the heck? Does whether it's happened yet or not. It's happening all the time. Here's the timeline of human history. Sinai, let's say, is right here. That's how we think about it. Sinai is here. So this is where Torah is given. But from God's perspective, in reality, meaning capital R, in reality, Torah is given in here. Past, present, and future. Correct. At every moment on that line. So how are we, I mean, we read Torah every week, the same thing, around and around and around. So, I mean, I think it's kind of cool, the whole concept, because, you know, when you're in Torah study, you, you sometimes you really get, com, com, you contemplate, you feel like you're there. It doesn't matter what it's myth. And you, what does it feel like, you know, when those guys are behind us, ready to kill off? It's like you're there, and, and all the human stuff that's going on. So it, it kind of is, lo, is logical. So in an illogical way, it's logical. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right? In yeah. an illogical sense, it makes sense. Right. Hundred percent. So what is the implication? If Torah is being given all the time, every moment of human history, what is the implication? <coughs> Sir? <laughs> well, one, it's accessible. It's accessible. Everybody, all the time. Because it's being given right now to all of us. But to to go on Dana's thought is that when we study year after year and read Torah and the same portions, there's always something new. Mm -hmm. Ha 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 ha. Because it's ongoing. And we change. And so the Torah we receive when we change is a new Torah. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Same words. You know, at the risk of being naive or uneducated, when when I I study Torah with our teachers, or when I'm reading this, I feel it's so smart. (laughs) I mean, if you're constructing a religion, and I'm looking at it in that you know, like a anthropological right, where it's just it's so smart. We're nothing if not smart. <laughs> Can I say that safely? <laughs> right in this room as a tradition. All right. So so that's we could spend two hours on this concept. Um, and we'll we'll come back to it if there's if there's time and we want to say more because it's gonna weave into what happens next. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about. <clears throat> One Mystical concept, one part of one mystical concept leads us into implications that are profound and far reaching. So there's one translation, and that is. One translation? Tell me what that means. Well, when, when Gordon Tucker says this is, this is, he's decoding it, we're going to just take that as a met. Okay, no. Th- this, is, this is not the words of Gordon Tucker. This is the words of the Ohev Yisrael. The Oev Yisrael is decoding a mis- a teeny part of some mystical concept. So, 
just as we spoke about the, the, the every time we read Torah, something else is a little bit different, is that the same here? Does, or does this always remain what it's going to be coded as? Well, the Oh, have Israel would say, you tell me, because you're receiving Torah right now. Okay. I'm not being smart. I mean, no, no. It's, literally, yes. he's saying, every time you open a holy book, and by the way, this is a holy book, right? These are holy texts. Every time you open a holy book, how are you supposed to experience it? As if you're standing at Sinai, receiving Torah. Well, only you can tell me the Torah you receive. That's the gorgeousness. Do you see the beauty and the revolutionary nature of this idea? Beautiful. You could say God is, was, always will be. Everything God is doing is code. Okay, whatever. Until you start to unpack it and understand the implication is, then revelation is ongoing. So that really, and if all the people were there, then it really means nobody has really, if you push this, which is what Hasidism was all about, if you push it, who doesn't have the monopoly? Tom? Yeah, the thing is, though, that if you're getting revelation all the time, but like the Israelites at uh, Mount Sinai, you don't want to get revelation. Oh, Tom, you just earned the privilege of reading at the top of page 68. <laughs> no, all I'm saying is if you read this, you see what they didn't want. Go on, please. Pa- on top of page 68, Tom. All right. The modern Israel are freedom, but Moses' hands grew heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him. Top, top. Exodus 17, 8, 17, 12. It is written in the book, that had the Israelites not said to Moses, you go closer and hear all that the Lord our God says, and then you tell us, lest we die, and had they rather listened to the ten utterances from the blessed, blessed presence directly, that being the Ten Commandments, as it were, they would then not have had any need for the tablets of stone. Instead, the blessed presence would have bestowed on them a flow of great and pure wisdom and such great insight that the very hands of Moses themselves would have virtually become two tablets. And then his ten fingers, five on the right side, five on the left, would have illuminated everything for Israel. In that way, they would have been able to apprehend the complete Torah. But since they rejected this out of hand and wished to hear God's word through an intermediary, their insight was diminished, and they then needed to stone talent. So the point is, what, what, what this guy's saying is that most people don't want to bother with this stuff. So. Exactly. Exactly right. So it belongs to everyone because everyone is always at the foot of the mountain. But what happens? Only a few take it out. Only a few want to take it in. Because what happened at Mount Sinai? What happened at Revelation? God started to speak Anochi Adonai Elohechem. The first letter of the first word of the ten utterances is what? The first letter of the first word. Thank you, Bert. The first letter of the first word of the ten commandments is Aleph. What sound does an Aleph make? Silence. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it. Or 
in my modern America 2014 hat. I won't repeat it outside of this room. If you repeat it, I'll deny it. It's a podcast now. Thank you. But I'm going to say it anyway, of course. Um, is that not that they couldn't handle it, but I would say today they wouldn't handle it. They weren't interested. They're not interested in handling it. I think that's another aspect of where one is so smart, it's so smart, but it also is so humanistic. Because this is, in our day and age, you call it an, an, a, a citizen breed that doesn't educate itself, which is death to democracy. And the beginning of this is such a democratization. Democratization. Making it available to everybody, but some people don't want to do the work. The spot I met Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, one of our great Hasidic masters, said not only was it available to everybody, it had to be everybody who was there. Because had one of those minds been missing, revelation would have been incomplete. It took the entire people of Israel for a complete revelation. But, but Amy, wait a minute. Is this also not saying that if you refuse to pick up knowledge that's available, you endanger the whole civilization? Because here you have the Amalekites coming up from behind and almost demolishing uh, the Hebrews. And uh, I mean, the Amalekites, they're the South today, by the way. That's where they came from. Uh, they, um, no, they almost destroyed Israel, and, and the implication here is because most of the people didn't want it. So this is a very coded, coded, not coded, coded version of the Hasidim saying exactly that, I think. Right. That they don't want to be too sharp about it, but the people in the room who would have been reading and studying the Ohev Yisrael are already people who have opted in. So what does that say today about a 21% voter turnout? I think it says really terrifying things about a 21% voter turnout. I think it says that God is screaming, vote, read, learn. No, of course. But, but remember for... for for biblical Israel, there was no difference between theocracy and democracy. I mean, for them, religion was politics. And for us as Reconstructionist Jews, Mordechai Kaplan said, if your politics don't have Jewish religion in it, they're missing something. And if your Judaism doesn't have American democratic principles in it, it's missing something. And that's what it means to live fully in two civilizations. And so if we as Jews are not voting, we, we are turning Moshe's hands to stone. So what? It, how, how does this text get read, which I think is gorgeous? Not from the top, from uh, Moses' hands grew heavy, and so they took stone and put it under him, tachtav, the same word underneath can be used to mean in place of. They put stone in place of Moshe. And in place of his hands. His hands had, had every Israelite said, 
Yes, I am ready for this experience. Yes, it's terrifying. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I do not know what's happening to me. My mind might be coming apart, but I trust this force that led us out of suffering and oppression and slavery and made miraculous things happen, made my daughter come out of me alive and allowed me to live. Okay, that, obviously that's my experience, right? <laughs> if I don't trust that and say, okay, I'm, I'm ready for how it's moving through me next and now, then if everybody had been ready to do that, then Moshe's hands would have been light. They would have been one example of Torah. Everybody's hands would have been like that, would have been illumined. Wow, right? Wow. What would a world look like where everyone allowed the one to move through them right now? The energy of healing, love, transformation, justice, compassion, empathy. What if that force move? If we allowed that to move through us? And what it called us into right now, every moment, our hands would be lit up. This world would be lit up and changed. But because they shut down, I'm afraid. I don't understand. I, this feels strange. This feels too much. I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to. Instead, Moshe's hands held stone. So we can blame the Jews for the horribleness of humanity. That is not where they're going. I think they're talking about human nature. This is our experience of it. Other people have theirs. But but this is our experience of what it means when we say, and it's happening every minute. Remember, this wasn't once upon a time. This is this afternoon. We said no this afternoon. Responsibility ah. for the masses. Jody, talk to me about what that means. Well, you have to be ready to get the information, but I think that it was a lot easier, like it is today, to say, oh, why don't you go get the information, then you kind of bring it to me, and I'll listen to kind of part of it, but I wasn't really listening to all that, and they don't want to do the work. Um, but it's not, that is what it is today, when, as somebody was just saying, it's exactly the same. It happens all the time when you say to somebody, Oh, what did you think about this and this and this? Oh, well, I didn't read that. Oh, well, the information is actually available to you, um, but I, I, I don't want to go get it. So it's a lot of responsibility to receive the information because then you have to make choices. You have to vote. You have to make choices. You have to make decisions, and you have to affect change in the world. So, so access to knowledge leads us if we're gonna now know something differently, it leads us into responsibility to change, doesn't it? To not do things the way we did them before we knew that. Yeah. <laughs> right? And for a lot of us, for most of us, they're writing to every single Jew that's ever lived and ever will because they're all human. For humans, we don't love change, especially when it's going to call me to change how I've been doing it, how I like to do it, how I thought I should do it, how I just felt like doing it in the moment. I don't like to own that, wait a minute, maybe I need to do it differently. What happens? I lose face. I didn't know everything. I wasn't the smartest and the best and perfect. And don't we hate that? Well, it's getting rid of a false self. It's getting rid of a false self. 
So, which leads beautifully into the big, big, big other way they blew it in the desert, which was what? One, according to this, was that they sent, they said, Moshe, you do it. You go get it, and then you tell us. What's the other way they really blew it in the desert? The golden calf. How does that connect to what you just said? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Letting go of a false self, Bert. How does it connect to the golden calf? They were. If we don't like to let go of a false self, they didn't want to let go of the image of God. Something physical. They didn't want to let go of the old image of God that worked when they were slaves, that worked in Egypt, that still seems to be working just fine for the Egyptians, thank you very much, as we're schlepping through the desert. They they didn't want to let go of what was no longer a real image. They knew the real image. The real image was what shat, you know, like shattered a sea and had them move through, that, that brought darkness and plagues on Egypt. They knew that. They experienced that, but they still couldn't let go the false image that was so comforting and so tempting. It's easier. It's so much easier. So much easier for us. If you are informed by a divine light, you are called to make ethical choices. And every single action that you make, reading every single thing, is informed with a weight that it did not have before. It's a lot easier to watch television, you know? <laughs> it's a lot easier to just switch it off. Tell me how we talk about weight in Hebrew. Uh-oh. Are these dry erase markers? <laughs> Whew, thank God. Okay. I, they would kill me in the religious school. All right. How do we talk about weight in Hebrew? Kaveh. Kaveh. And... Okay, I can't print to save my life. Kaveh. So those of you who started Torah with me, you know something about where I'm going. What does it mean? Kaveh, wait, what does that mean? What is it related to? Kavod. Kavod. Significance. Significance. Glory. The divine glory. Respect. Wait in Hebrew is kavod. Honor your father and your mother. Kibud et avaim. Treat them as if they have weight, as if they matter. That is God's glory, God's kavod, God's weightiness in the world. That is the word for respect. So if Right now, everything that I know something about in terms of ethics and morals and values, now everything I do has a different weight. And I bring a different kavod. I bring a sense of kavod, of respect to things in a way I didn't before. It is not human, though, to spend your whole... I mean, you can do it for a part of your life, maybe after you're 40, but your whole life, it's not humanly possible. And even at the end, when people grow weight, grow weak, you know, like Moses even, you can't do it, you can't continue it. So for sure, I hear you saying that that the mystics had some understanding of human nature in that until you're 40, forget about it. Like, you know, you can go through the potions, but it really doesn't really, really sink in until 40. 
um, which was a lot closer to the end for a lot of them, right? They were very aware that it was closer to the end for a lot of them than it would be for us. You know, 50 is the new 40. Um, but I, I believe that they would say, we engage with this for the rest of our lives until the moment of our death at our choice. Do we choose it all the time? Of course not, we're human. Do we need to be engaging in ways that call us into it more frequently? You better believe it. Or you can just live a regular observant Jewish life, okay? Right? Give tzedakah, go visit the sick, go to every funeral, no matter what you're doing, drop what you're doing, go to a funeral procession. If you just light Shabbat, you do all the things you're supposed to do as an observant Jew, that's okay. That's fine. This isn't for everybody. But if you really want, and what God really wants, is for us to say yes. I'm listening. That's more than that. It's to act. To act with the respect because if we really receive it, it will affect how we behave. Exactly. If we really receive it. Exactly. It has to. Exactly. There's no way we could now do certain things without the weight of knowledge, of understanding, of what the right thing and the wrong thing is to do. Now if I do the wrong thing, <laughs> I do that with a weightiness me, that I didn't do before I knew it was wrong. Or you lower the respect, and therefore you create the space to go back or I lower respect for myself. Because every time I make a choice against my own understanding of what's right and wrong, I influence my opinion of myself. And you distance yourself. And I distance myself from myself, meaning my self, capital S, and from the divine self. Every time I do that. All right. What time are we at? 8.10. 8.10? How does that, 8.15, how does that happen? Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> I love Ruben. 8.15 is the new 7.30. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Elias. That's hilarious. All right, I want to go to a few points made by Rabbi Tucker, who's an incredible speaker and a wonderful teacher. <clears throat> Let's go to, I want to go to his second point. Uh, not the, the first part about God being eternal. All right, let's go to the middle of page 70. And go to the sentence, like, the first third of the page, where it says, Asara Ma'amarot in... You see parentheses and you see some italics, right? That's an easy mm -hmm. place to find, right? Okay. So I'm going to go to the beginning of that paragraph, or the beginning of that sentence. The Ohev Yisrael paraphrases Rabbi Menachem Azariah of Fano's words in Asarama Amarot, that if only the Israelites had been willing to listen more directly to God, rather than asking for an intermediary, the Ten Commandments would have gone directly into their ten fingers, just as they had into the ten fingers of Moses. And from there into their very existence and substance. 
They would have apprehended an intuitive truth, as it were. And we're going to drop down to the next sentence. Well, actually, in our innermost being and inscribed within us would have been God's teaching. The embodiment of revelation that is offered us in these remarkable depictions reminds us of the descriptions in both scripture and in later sacred literature of the physical effects of prophetic encounters. This was to what happened, we are taught, with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, uh, but it did not happen as it was intended to. Instead, our ancestors at Mount Sinai asked Moses to be their intermediary. <clears throat> Go down to where it says, how different inert stone is as a receptacle for God's Torah from the living, organic, innermost being of the human receiver encountering the eternal and timeless. We can go to a page. Yes, we can go to a page. We should. That's what we got given. We got given the tablets. We got given teachers to explicate it. We got given this page. We got given Torah. Of course we should go to it. And, and what happens when the teaching, when we encounter directly, this teaching is lovely. What happens when we encounter directly the experience of being filled with the divine directly. That is a different experience and it changes us. It deeply changes who we are, how we behave, what choices we make, how we are spirit embodied. And that was the original intention. We don't have it possible then but it's possible right now because it's happening all the time so the challenge is are we ready to change our minds or are we still going to send Moshe are we still going to say the only place to find any of this business is here and then the rabbi has to explicate it for us nothing you should stop doing that (laughs) (laughs) that's a, a wonderful thing and what it should I believe, which is the point of bringing these texts, because I believe Gordon Tucker thinks the same thing, Rabbi Tucker, is that by bringing them, by engaging with them, is that you go home and sometime next week, (laughs) something opens differently. Something opens in a different way. And it's your direct experience of that godliness in that moment that God wants. You know, the, uh, listening to this whole talk, it's almost like the stone becomes a blockage to a channel when it prevents the flow from entering it. And once that's blocked, do whatever you want and live with the consequences. If we block it up, right? So. The spirit dies. Hmm? The spirit dies. It can. In terms of how it's enacted and how it it acts in the world. The spirit, God forbid, never dies. But certainly how we behave can be uninformed by our neshama, by our soul, by our connection to the divine, by, to that divine spark within us. Talk a little about how the thoughts you've just been talking about, just been discussing, uh, are marked difference between Judaism and Christianity and some other religions. 
I'm not sure. I, I don't think I know enough about um, Christian mysticism, you know, to know. So it is clear that the the Kabbalistic tradition, which starts very early, by the way, it's very early. Ezekiel are the first Kabbalistic texts we have. Merkava chariot mysticism are the first mystical texts we have. It's very early. So in those early mystical texts, it's already attention with the whole idea of a priesthood, right? Which is in there in our tradition. So definitely this comes out of the understanding that an intermediary, the priest, is not ultimately what they're teaching is the best answer. Even as they fantasize about the rebuilding of the third temple, really, they're... So this is post-tearing down the temple. So there are, there are already, at the second temple period, there are already stirrings and movements against the priesthood. There's a thriving community in Babylonia after the first destruction of the first temple, they don't come back. So they stay over there saying, oh yes, the temple's great, the priesthood is great, and here's our taxes. Like, here's our money to make sure that the lights stay on in that KI place. Well, I'll have to, okay, let's distinguish KI from that. But, right, that, that we'll send money for everything, but they didn't come back. They didn't participate in a priest-run Judaism, because it wasn't Judaism, it was, you know, biblical cult religion. They didn't participate in the cult. They stayed in Babylonia, where the model was the academy, where the model was every mind was, was offered the opportunity to study these texts, and did, well, every male mind was offered the opportunity to dig in and study these texts and figure out how to live it in their own lives. That's already happening when there's still a priesthood. So we had that going on, and then the priesthood fell with the destruction of the second temple, and what what was already flourishing and what then won the day because of historical events was this non-intermediary, non-intercessory Judaism. I have a question. You asked about the difference in Christianity. and Isn't one of the major differences that when we pray directly to God, that they have to pray... Well, they can pray directly to God the Father. They can pray to the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't think it's that they can't. I mean, I sometimes envy them. They have a lot of help. Yeah. <laughs> there are days, can I just tell you? I Right? There's days that I'm one of these people. There's a lot of days I'm schlepping through the desert. Going, really? I'm supposed to have some awesome, wondrous, amazing, life-opening and changing where I'm going to have to let go of a false self? Really? I don't think so. Somebody do it for me, please, and just tell me how many how many shmas I have to say. How many v'ahavtas? Right? Just, just, just let me know what it is like. How many mezuzahs I have to kiss? And then, like, I'm done. Give me the bullet points. Give me the bullet points. Like, And don't make me give anything up about... Right? My own deep, and I'm not saying that, that other people don't. I'm just saying, for me, there's days I long, and I get why an intermediary, an intercessory figure is really helpful. It's hard for us. This is, this is hard. It's hard work. 
It's hard work, and it is work. The, by the way, what is the word for service of the divine? Avodah. What's the word for work? Avodah. <laughs> What's the word for slave? Eved. Right? It is not easy, this work. And it doesn't have to be as hard as we make it. It's as close as the next bite of food. It's as close as the next time we smell a child's head that we love. It's as close as the memory of my grandmother's rugelach baking. Right? It, it's that immediate. We complicate it so much that if we could trust and be willing to allow the trembling to stay with the fear, to stay with the resistance, to stay through it, it doesn't have to be awful. Yeah. It seems like a, a doesn't have to be Hebrew for us to get that we get in our own way. We resist. And it's the resistance that's so hard, Rabbi Renner. I just wanted to uplift what the word Kabbalah means in Hebrew. Please. Uh, it means receiving. Like in Israel, if you were to get a receipt for something, it's also called a Kabbalah. This point that you're making, uh, Natalie, about uh, not pushing it so hard, but perhaps um, letting it come to you, um, it is about receiving it this way. It is what we receive. Um, packed into that Hebrew word itself. Right? So the work of really being able to do this is to receive it. Receive it. Capital I. Are we ready to receive it? Even the, even the word uh, trembling is, can, be, can be reframed as vibrating. And then, you know, for uh, you know, if you happen to be into physics and know about spring, string theory, you know, everything in the universe is, comes down to vibrating strings. Everything we talk about, you know, divine emanations and resonances with different things. And, you know, so the, so the, 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 uh, what they talk about, the, the Sinai experience making the entire camp tremble. What really happens with a truly Sinai experience is everybody begins to resonate along with the rest of the universe. See what I said about math and <laughs> physics and, of course, it's Torah, right? So we, when we start to vibrate, we start to resonate, right? Things change, but boy, that's, that's unsettling, right? When we're not, and then when we start pushing against it, then we, then we complicate it even further. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, the trembling and the receiving can be the most wonderful thing, like when you when you meditated, you breathe in and you're breathing God's breath, whatever. But it can also be terrifying because it's so big. 
And I was thinking, you know, at Sinai, you know, maybe they didn't want the responsibility, whatever, but part of it, or maybe most of it, could have been, um, after seeing all these miracles, to take something that big and that powerful in is really frightening. If you've ever fallen in love, <laughs> how terrifying is that? If you've ever loved a child that's vulnerable, oh my God, your heart's running around out there all of a sudden. Like, what? If you ever loved a puppy, to really take in those powerful experiences of love leaves us incredibly vulnerable, leaves us busted open in ways that make us really nervous. That And when we have those experiences of love, and it doesn't have to be whatever kind of, you just, oh, right, getting it, like those of us who have had moments in meditation or in chanting or in services, imagine that. <laughs> right in there, in that other room. When we have those, like they're, they're hugely disturbing, right? They disturb the status quo. They disturb the way things are. If we can stay with it, the possibility is that we then become transmitters of something incredibly world-changing. It's very rewarding if you can get there. That's right. But it, a, it's a surrender. All the stuff that we keep ourselves from getting hurt is really we keep ourselves from feeling. We can't receive when we're defended. We have to be ready to surrender, Reuben? I, I just want to know whether this Kohen Yisrael is a Kabbalistic writer. He is a Hasidic teacher, and Hasidism takes the teachings of Kabbalah and brings them into what they thought was a, a more everyday application. It's their thoughts on Kabbalistic thoughts. So this Kohen Yisrael is a First decoding, as you said earlier. It's one decoding. Okay. There are lots of decodings. All right, let's, let's close with this last paragraph on page 71. The double juxtaposition we have seen here of Amalek and Revelation is meant to remind us of the dangers that lurk when we fear or dismiss religious experience, when we close our bodies off to the intimacy of feeling the divine presence, and when we are satisfied with intermediaries, be they great leaders or great texts. We'll take a moment. Don't get in your heads. Just take a minute. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, to shut out all the visual distraction, I'll invite you to do that. Take a moment just to feel your body in the chair, your feet on the floor, your groundedness to this planet of which you are a part. You are a creature of this world, connected by gravity, pulled to this earth, of this earth, connected to every other living being, every other thing, every other person in this world. Sensing your weight in the chair, 
kaved, your own weightiness. You matter. Sensing the breath as it enters the torso. Noticing that it enters and leaves of its own miraculous happening. The mystics teach us, our rabbis teach us, that we are breathed by God. We do not breathe. We are breathed. It happens. It is a gift. Just noticing the heart beating, the miracle of every cell being healed by oxygenated blood coming to it. Letting the shoulders drop away from the ears, relaxing fully into being here right now in this moment. The incredible, amazing gift of silence. Intentional, holy, communal silence. The eyes being soft in the head. The brow unknitting. The top of the head, keter, the crown, according to Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. We are each an embodiment of the ten spherot. We are a microcosm, each one of us. Keter, at the crown, we are open to receiving the abundant love, healing, compassion, transformative Shefa, abundance, that is the divine filling the cosmos and filling every cell of our being. This is the unmitigated experience of the divine as it moves through this learning community in our holy and sacred space. Acknowledge yourselves for giving yourself the gift of this hour and a half together and carry this immediacy forward that it might bless your interactions for the next 24 hours at least. Erev Tov, have a wonderful evening.